before we really get started this morning, the first song that we sang, okay, you want to be there, that's fine, we'll, we'll go with that. The first song we sang, My Soul Longs for the Lord, there's a line in verse 4, it says, Hear your shout of jubilation. That is a reference to Zephaniah 3.17. And wow, that's really a buzzing, isn't it? Do I need to stand back? Turn it down? Oh, it's magic. Wow, that's amazing. Zephaniah 3.17, properly translated, speaks of the, and you don't have to turn there, it speaks of the return of Jesus Christ to his people. And properly translated, it says that he sings, he shouts, and he dances over his people. So it, it, this is not uh, the Lord Jesus coming stoically back to the earth. He is doing what King David did when David danced his way into Jerusalem. So whenever you sing that line, hear the shout of jubilation, that is Christ shouting over his joy for you. Well, with that, let's get into our second session here. I read an interesting study, and I find the weirdest things sometimes, but I, I'm amazed at how the Lord uses them. In 2013, there was a professional scientific journal and it published a study of cerebral and autonomic nervous system activity and they took 26 men and what they did was they gave these men one variable, one little stimulus. This was a well-done professional study. They hooked up each man, I've seen a picture of it, um, to this machine. They had 47 electrodes attached to their head. And, and they look like some sort of science fiction movie here. But they aimed these electrodes at specific areas of the brain believed to control feeling, judgment, premotor function, motor function, memory, cognition, visual, auditory, and speech functions. They were also monitoring heart rate, blood pressure rates, and basic bodily functions. Then the one stimulus, the, the variable, was introduced to the environment. And the, resu the results were pretty amazing. The variable, the stimulus which was introduced, was shown across the board consistently to increase positive emotion, decrease negative emotion, such as depression. They also found that memory, movement, muscle memory, and speech were all improved. The subjects also reported being more cheerful, having uh, more active and exciting images in their mind as well. And so overall, it was just a, a super positive influence. So what was this magic variable that was introduced to them? It was four petals from a plum blossom is all it was. And it was just four little petals and they just basically, they didn't know what it was. They weren't told what the variable was. They just knew that something was happening. And of course, you don't need a scientific study to know that that's the case. You know that the scent of flowers is just all around wonderful and nice. But there's something else that I think we could point out. Have you also noticed that a pleasant fragrance is predictable by the sight of a flower? That you can understand this? A rose is beautiful and it smells great. So you wouldn't expect a bouquet of roses and have it smell like diesel fuel, right? We see something beautiful. We expect it to have a beautiful aroma. Well, in the same way, the external appearance of a Christian, how we present ourselves meaning the way she lives her life, the habits that you have, the priorities you select, the words you say, the faith in Christ which you, you speak of, you outwardly profess, you would naturally think that by virtue of what you see, there should be something internal that is beautiful as well. We might call this the fragrance of life, that the internal matches the external. Now, what do I mean by the fragrance of life? That is not uh, a, 
in a, an original phrase with me that is from the Apostle Paul. He said in 2 Corinthians 2.14, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. And so this knowledge of Christ, this fragrance of Christ, must necessarily be accompanied by a life that is consistent with Christ, right? That's what the fragrance is. This means that how you interact with your sisters in Christ, with your brothers in Christ, how you interact with unbelievers, it matters, It's to the glory of God to conduct yourselves in a way that matches who you are. Jesus said it this way, Matthew 5, 16, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so that's what I'd like to talk about today. Last night we looked at blossoming with generous sunshine, basking in the glory of Christ. And this morning I want to look at blossoming with lovely fragrance. The lovely fragrance, the fragrance of the character and the integrity and the love that a Christian ought to exude. And to help us do this, turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to continue looking at some of the parables of Jesus. We'll take a good part of our morning this morning to understand this parable, and then the application will be more obvious to us as to what that lovely fragrance of Christ actually is. We'll start with the first seven verses. Matthew 20, beginning in verse 1. And this is Jesus speaking. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard also, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. So Jesus right now is in the region of Perea. This is on the east side of the Jordan River. And he's on his way to Jerusalem for the final time. He is going to die for the sins of all who would believe in him. He has just interacted with the rich young ruler. Just in the the previous section here, the rich young ruler had an idol in his life. That idol was money. And Jesus commanded him to get rid of this idol, to follow Christ. But the man refused, and he went away unsaved and unredeemed. And that will be important for us a little bit later. Now Jesus tells this parable to those who are listening, and it seems to be directed primarily at his disciples. Since at the end of chapter 19, Um, we see a personal conversation with them. So at the end of 19, he's speaking to his disciples, and this is continuing that conversation right after the rich young ruler, the rich young man. Now, who are these laborers? Well, day laborers formed a major part of the economic system in Jesus' day. Um, You know, the old joke here is in our culture, you drive by Home Depot, and that's where you see the day laborers, and we kind of We kind of joke about that, but in this economy, that was normal. Uh, That was the majority of people. They were out looking for work. And so to own a vineyard meant that every year you you could expect a very large payday, but you also had to harvest at just the right time. And so you needed an army of workers to come and pick all these grapes. So the vineyard owner would come out early to make certain there were enough workers for the field. If he was well-to-do, he may have his own core of employees already, but he would generally add to the group to handle the harvest. And farmers today even do that. They, they hire laborers for just the harvest. 
And so he would have gone to the marketplace, to the center of town. This is where all the, the men would be hanging out there, hoping for work. They would work for a day's wage, and if they weren't hired in the morning, then they probably weren't going to work that day. The text says that after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, that was an easy negotiation because that was a normal day's wage, so it wasn't a, a big negotiation. But in verse 3, it says that he went back. And this is very unusual. There's only two reasons he would go back. Either he didn't get all the workmen that he needed, or he decided that he wanted the work to go faster. And so he goes back, it says, at the third hour. This would be the third hour after sunrise, meaning it's about 9 o'clock in the morning. Now, in our culture, that's about when the workday is starting, but considering the fact that you could only work when the sun is up in this culture, you started working when the sun came up. And so at 9 o'clock, you're already 25% of the way through the workday. Um, The day is already ticking by. And so he tells them, whatever is right, I will give you, meaning... The day is 25% over, so you can probably expect 75% of a day's wage. That's fair. Everybody would think that was fine. 75% is better than zero, so those guys ran off to the field. But then very unusually, he comes back, and he does it again. He repeats the same process at the sixth hour, that's about noon, and at the ninth hour, about 3 p.m. By 3 p.m., those laborers would basically expect a tip. That's all they're going to get. They're they're going to go for a few hours. But it's still in the realm of the normal. Going and hiring somebody for three hours work, that's still reasonable. Now we come upon something that's very unusual. And it's actually a very sad scene. We enter into a scene of human sadness and desperation and hopelessness. A, A day laborer wasn't working to bolster his position in the stock market. He wasn't working to pad his IRA. He was literally working to bring home food for his family that evening. And so his family would be at home hoping that he had received work. Why would there still be men hanging out in the marketplace at 5 p.m.? Because they don't want to go home empty-handed. And like all men, they're going to avoid trouble as long as they can until they have to. And so at the 11th hour... 5 p.m., the man goes back to the marketplace. There's still men there, and he asked them why they were standing there idle all day. He's not implying that they were lazy. They just hadn't been hired. Now, why hadn't they been hired? Well, most likely these were the older ones. These were the the, the weaker ones, the more infirm ones. They were the last ones anyone would hire, and so the man's question is a compassionate question. Why? You haven't been hired yet. Why is that? And so the man in his kindness right up to the 11th hour, maybe an hour or two before the sun's going to go down, he's ready to take these workmen on again. This would be a a, a total long shot for the laborers. They've been waiting there all day long, probably can't believe their good luck, possibly avoiding going home until dark because no one wants to disappoint their families. And so they kept waiting, hoping upon hope. So off to the field they go, maybe work for an hour or two, certainly do their best and, and do the most that they could. Maybe they could make enough for a half of a loaf of bread to bring home to their family, something, some little thing. Now, everyone listening to this story being told by Jesus could relate to the story at this point. Even the 11th hour, wow, that's an extra kind man. It still fit the realm of the normal. But then we get into the realm of something that was just shocked the disciples. They would be appalled at this, something unheard of in their own life experience. The owner breaks with tradition in verse 8. 
And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages. That's normal. Beginning with the last up to the first. He tells the foreman, pay the guys that I just hired a couple hours ago first and pay the ones I hired at six o'clock this morning last. Something is fishy here. Now that's shocking enough. But in verse nine, when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius, an entire day's wage. Now, if you're if you've been hired at 6 a.m. and you're in line and you see the guy who got hired at five o'clock giving a denarius, what are you going to be telling the guys around you? Oh, this is going to be great. I've been here all day. I've been sweating like crazy. I'm tired. I, I, who knows what we're going to get? This guy must be loaded. And so in verse 10, now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. Now, what would that do for those guys? What would they do? They would complain and complain they did. Verse 11, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. What did they forget? Verse 2, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, they completely forgot the agreement that they had made. Verse 13, but he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? And so he, he pulls aside one of them very kindly, probably the lead complainer, and he speaks kindly to him and he calls him friend. He, he doesn't put him down. He just reminds him, I'm keeping my end of the bargain. You're getting everything that you asked for. And the owner explains himself. He says in verse 14, take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? The key idea here is that the owner is choosing and he gives what he desires out of what already belongs to him. And so Jesus now ends this parable where he began. He started the parable by saying the kingdom of heaven is like, and now he makes his point in verse 16, so the last will be first and the first last. In other words, human rankings have no impact on whom the Lord chooses. The kingdom will be occupied by those God chooses. If you don't believe in the doctrine of election, verse 15 would argue with you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me. This is his choice. So what's the whole point of the proverb? What is Jesus teaching his disciples? Well, very simply, he's painting a clear picture of the sovereign grace of God in salvation. He's painting a clear picture of God's sovereign choice, his choice. There is no heresy as widespread as the one we put simply as if I live a good life, I will go to heaven when I die. Humanity naturally thinks that we can earn our salvation, but Scripture consistently teaches that we're sinners who fall short of the grace of God. We fall short of the the standard of God's righteousness. We have no claim at all. I, I mean, about the best we could do is to say, I'm slightly less completely heinously wicked than this person. That's about all we could do. All sinners are completely unworthy. James 2 Chapter uh, verse 10 says that if you've committed one sin, you are guilty of all. 
And so in the courts of God, we're all completely unworthy. No one comes before someone else in terms of salvation. The one who's saved one minute before his death receives the same eternal bliss with God as the one saved when she was three years old. We receive the same. Salvation is due to the Father's good pleasure. John 6.44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, I want to dig a little bit deeper on this before we get to our application. The Apostle John explains this in detail. You can just note this reference. John 1, 12-13 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And so John is explaining here what being born of God does not mean. It is not of blood. This is interesting because this is actually plural in Greek, not of bloods. Now, this is explaining really the scientific understanding that a first century reader would have of birth. This reflects a metaphorical understanding that procreation involves the mixing of bloods, the blood of the mother and the blood of the father. That's a pretty accurate ancient description of what we now know is DNA. And so we're not born of bloods. He says, nor of the will of the flesh. It literally means the desire of the flesh, meaning human desire. That salvation doesn't occur because of natural desire. It is something supernatural. And then he says, it's not of the will of man. Now, this isn't speaking of man as mankind, but this is speaking of the will of a male, of a husband. So a husband's initiative with his wife to bear a child is what he's speaking of here. In other words, not of bloods, not of the will of the flesh, not the will of a man. In other words, being a child of God is not a result of blood relations. And this is important because the Gospel of John is written to Jews and to a Jew being descended directly from the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was very, very important to them. This was vital to their understanding of God's favor. But John's point is, it doesn't matter who your parents are. doesn't matter who your relations are. A parent can't decide that his child will be a believer. A, a person can't will themselves to believe. It can't happen. The new birth is always a miracle. It's always a great miracle. Dr. Steve Lawson always says that the new birth is the greatest miracle in the Bible. And I would agree with that. People are born of God and can be born into the heavenly family in no other way. In fact, salvation is not earned at all. The, the word wages in this story here, it's really not speaking so much as something that can be earned. They're really more like gifts. Verse 14, take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Giving an entire day's wage for doing almost nothing, that's a gift. That's something that's unearned. That's not something that is, is merited. So let's put the story back into its context so we can begin to see a connection to being the fragrance of Christ. Now, I told you it was important that this parable happens immediately after Jesus has a conversation with a rich young ruler the rich young ruler has gone away rejecting Christ's offer for salvation. Now, because he was considered the most successful type of Jew, I preached a message on this just a couple of weeks ago, he was a synagogue leader, he was wealthy, he was moral, he was a law keeper. The disciples would think the rich young ruler is the greatest candidate for salvation. He's the greatest candidate to enter the kingdom. 
But Jesus shocked them. And he said that that man and men like him, meaning the rich, would have great difficulty entering the kingdom. And so they're shocked by this. And he asserts to them that salvation is God's work alone. Look with me at chapter 19, verse 26. Verse 25, rather. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With, this man, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now this is important, and we need to connect these two stories now. The disciples, unlike the rich young ruler, they had given up everything to follow Christ. They, they had left their families. They had been with Christ for nearly three years. They left uh, uh, thriving businesses. They loved Jesus. Now, all except for Judas, he's an exception. But all of these disciples would go on to live lives of sacrifice, and every single one of them would give their lives for the cause of Christ, ultimately. And so they're asking at the end of verse nine, of chapter 19, Look, we've been with you for several years now. Uh, unlike the rich young man who walked away, we've been with you the whole time. What do we get? What's coming down the road? What do we get in the near future? They expected special benefits. In their minds, the kingdom was coming very soon. In fact, you go all the way to the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, right before Jesus ascends into heaven, their last question is, hey, is the kingdom coming anytime soon? Because you look like you're getting ready to leave. And he said, it's not for you to know. And then he's gone. And so they weren't going to get anything now. But at this moment, for them, the time of glory was near. Why do you think Judas was hanging around? He was hanging around hoping to get something now. But Jesus warns them in this parable. This is the connection between the rich young man, his conversation with the disciples, and the, the parable of the vineyard owner here. He's warning them against thinking that they will have a more special place in the kingdom just because they got there first. And in fact, because of that belief that they had, multiple times Jesus caught them arguing about who was the greatest in the kingdom. And so Jesus is telling this parable to his disciples. And who are the disciples in this story? They're the men waiting in line who worked all day and think they're going to get more because they got there first. And so this is a lesson to them. Hey, guys, everybody's getting eternal life, whether you get there immediately or you get there at the end. So God's grace is that he chooses whom He chooses, how He chooses, when He chooses. But what should our understanding of this nature of salvation, what should that do for you? That in Christ we're forgiven solely by His grace, solely by His kindness. Well, I'm going to assert that the fragrance of Christ that is resulting, the external evidence, the, the internal reality, the manifestation of your sanctification and your salvation that when those around you catch the aroma of salvation in you, that fragrance is humility. It is humility. Humility should be the result of God's sovereign grace. It should be the sweet new aroma of a believer in Christ. Why is this so important? Because all sin is rooted in pride, which is the stench of sin. Pride smells humility has an aroma that's beautiful. Now, if you think I'm just making that up or pulling that out of thin air... I believe that Scripture will vindicate this and demonstrate this connection, both generally and specifically. Now, first of all, generally speaking, all sanctification, all of our obedience to Christ, 
begins in the gospel. It always begins and ends with the gospel. And so we, we connect our, our obedience to the gospel. I've been saved by the grace of God alone, through the faith of God alone, revealed in Scripture alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And so any commands of Scripture, whether commands of humility or purity or watching our tongues or commands about marriage, commands about parenting, all of these must be rooted in the gospel because otherwise they just become guidelines for living devoid of their connection to the gospel or see also most evangelical American preaching that the Bible becomes just a list of rules and guidelines and moral principles. Generally speaking, humility and any other godly character trait is vitally connected to the saving grace of God. But we can make the case that specifically the connection is made very vivid in Scripture with the gospel and humility. If we put it this way, the gospel is the train engine and humility is the very first car that's being pulled by that train. There's one place that that connection is very, very clear. In Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul is given one of the greatest treatises on the grace of God in all the New Testament that we've been selected by God for salvation. That's the work of the Father. We've been redeemed by the work of the Son. We've been sealed in salvation by the work of the Spirit. Then Ephesians chapter 2 tells us clearly that by grace you have been saved. It's all God's work. And then beginning in Ephesians 4, Paul gives us our response to the gospel. Here it is. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's the gospel. What's first? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So the sweet fragrance of humility is connected like, a, like the first car and the train to the engine. And so to apply this, I want to show you three ways that we are to be humble. And I'll let three different texts guide our thinking. I think for the sake of time, it'll be easier to not turn to those texts, but just note the references. The first way that we are to be humble is you are to be humble in your response to God. In your response to God. And the first text that helps us is Colossians 3, verse 12. The Apostle Paul says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Now, obviously, we could spend all of our time just on that verse. There's, there's quite a, a, a treasure there. But in the area of humility, look at the connection that Paul makes here. The Christian is God's chosen one, chosen, eklektos. You can hear the word election in there. And when people say, well, election isn't in the Bible, actually, that's right where we got the phrase. It wasn't something we made up. Did we see an example of election in the parable in Matthew 20? Yes. We saw the vineyard owner going to the marketplace and saying, you, 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 and you, and coming back again, you, 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 and you, and again, and again, and again. I've heard some preachers rightly equate this to the different ages in which God has been selecting believers, that there is the age of Israel, the age of the church, the, the age of the great tribulation, the age of the millennial kingdom. He keeps going back for more and back for more and back for more. And so as, as God's elect ones, as God's chosen ones, we put on humility. Now, this is very interesting. The little conjunction, as God's chosen ones, it can be rightly translated like God's chosen ones, meaning humility should be natural. It should be who you are. 
But he tells us, put on humility. It's a quality that stands in contrast to pride. It is modesty. It is lowliness. It is self-abasement. Humility is the response of the elect to their election to salvation. That's how we respond. And this makes sense because the, the core idea of election is the idea that you have nothing of merit to offer God. Nothing at all. The old joke is is that if you believe you had something of merit to offer God, you should sing the little chorus, God is so good, 99 times, and I'm pretty good too, one time. But we don't. We have nothing to offer. And so there's never an occasion to respond to God in pride. Think about this. Think about um, praying, Lord, here's all that I have to offer you. There's nothing, right? There's nothing at all. We have another word for response to God. How we respond is the word worship. Worship. Worship is our humble response to God. It's the, and, and humility is the very character and the essence of worship. What, what happens in the Bible when people approach God without humility? They sometimes die. That, that's a big deal. In the very same context in the Colossians 3 passage, just a few verses later, as God's chosen ones who are responding to grace and humility... Paul says in verse 16 of Colossians 3, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Maybe those who don't take worship very seriously need to take a more sober view of the fact that all of us are the 11th hour ones. Every one of us are the pitiful ones with no place to go. Humility in response to God manifests itself in a teachable spirit, an eager heart for the truths of God's word. You know, one of the one of the degrading things in the mind of God about the whole idea that worship is about me, that worship is an entertainment experience, that worship is something you bring a latte to instead of bring a humble heart to, that has completely dropped the idea that I come to God on my face. You know, um, we don't design buildings anymore the way maybe they ought to be. The original church buildings of the third century missed something that we don't that we have. They didn't have chairs. You want to know why? It's because people could get on their faces before God, and they would sing standing up, and they would bow before God, and they would be able to show that humility physically. So we are to be humble in our response to God. Here's a second way we are to be humble. In your response to others. In your response to others. If you're not humble before God, others may not see it. If you're not humble with others, others will see it. And I think the most blunt explanation of this concept is found in the famous Philippians 2 passage. Paul is exhorting the Philippian church to godly character. And he says in Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, same word as Colossians 3, verse 12, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I don't know a better definition of humility than to count others as more significant than yourselves, to say, I am less important than you. So so what does this mean? The word translated to count, it means to have an internal attitude about something. In other words, humility doesn't begin with trying to look humble and say humble things. This is not a fake it till you make it situation here. You cannot fake humility. You might look like it for a time, but uh, have you ever seen somebody from across the room 
and you make eye contact and before they can decide what to do, their face falls at seeing the sight of you. And you know, I know what you think of me because your instant reaction, you weren't able to stick the fake smile on fast enough because there wasn't an internal attitude. Conversely, for example, I, I don't know how many times I've gotten home and, and I might sneak into the house and Sylvia doesn't hear me and she turns around and sees me there and the first thing that happens is she smiles. She doesn't, her face doesn't fall, it goes up because it's reflecting the real internal heart attitude. And so it's a real attitude. It's real. It's genuine. That I genuinely believe you are more important than me. By the way, you know what a humble believer is? We call that a happy believer. A happy believer. Every church member I've ever dealt with has issues of different kinds, struggles with pride. Because I'm important. Now let me illustrate this. And this is a, I, I think this will be powerful for you. It's very powerful for me to consider this. I want you to imagine that you have achieved suddenly 100% humility in your life. I'm not talking theologically here. I'm not talking about instant sanctification. Just for the moment, you have suddenly achieved 100% humility, biblical humility that others are more significant than yourselves. Do you realize that you could literally never be disappointed? that you would never have negative feelings because if you deserve nothing, then anything and everything you get is a grace of God. You would never be jealous because if someone has something that you don't, you would say, well, that makes sense because she's more important than I am. So I praise God for what she has. You would never be angry except with sin. You would never have a problem with authority in your life because humble people like receiving instruction. They like being led. They like being grateful followers. You would never spend time scrutinizing everyone around you because you already believe they're more important than you. You already believe they're more significant than you. You wouldn't have those thoughts in your head of analysis, of looking at this person and that person and making these value judgments. You would forgive so very easily because, of course, everyone else must sin less than I do. Peter's admonition that love covers a multitude of sins would come so easily to you. You would have great ease in putting up with difficult people because you would say, I can't imagine how difficult I must be. You see that 100% humility would suddenly give you a life of ease, a life of joy and, and happiness. Now, I have a very challenging question for you. It's a question I've asked myself. In every area of life in which your relationships with others, in which you feel consistently disappointed, angry, upset, whatever emotion you want to attach to that, especially those things that make you feel justified in a sinful response. Well, I had to yell at my husband because he wasn't listening to me. Well, I had to manipulate this woman with guilt because she wouldn't do what I needed. Well, I had to have a critical spirit toward this person in authority because my needs weren't being met. In every relationship realm in which you feel that consistent disappointment, is there a possibility that you believe you deserve better? I would say the answer has to be yes, that that's where that disappointment comes from. But on the positive side, humility robs disappointment of its power over you. Did you catch that? Humility robs disappointment of its power over you. I've been around women in the church enough to know that tremendous hurt can be inflicted in relationships. And for your information, it happens with men too. 
But how much of that hurt would be alleviated simply by recalling and believing in humility, count others more significant than yourselves? That would be a happy walk with the Lord. So you are to be humble in your response to God, in your response to others. Let me give you one, one more way to be humble. You are to be humble in response to yourself. In response to yourself. The phrase, she is her own worst enemy, can ring very true. In 1 Peter 5, Peter makes an astounding connection here. First, he exhorts, exhorts us to humility in our relationships. 1 Peter 5, verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But then Peter makes an amazing connection. And you have to follow me here for a moment. In the very next verse, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. What is the mighty hand of God? Well, in the context of 1 Peter This is an epistle written to suffering saints, to those who are suffering in many ways. The mighty hand of God is whatever pain, whatever sorrow, whatever hardship, whatever anguish that our sovereign God has placed in our lives as a result of following him in his overall plan for you and in his overall plan for the world. And so when bad things happen, how are we prone to respond? Here's the amazing connection. The very next verse, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you all your cares, all your worries. How do you respond to yourself when you're prone to great worry and anxiety? The connection is you respond with humility. What is anxiety ultimately rooted in? It's ultimately rooted in a belief that I am important. At the Master's University for several years, I taught the uh, freshman class that they all dreaded, spoken communication. And one of the thing we had to, things we had to try and get through was nerves speaking in front of people. And I did a whole lecture on this, and we would do a class discussion. What is the, the ultimate basis for being nervous? It's I'm more concerned about me than you. And the key to not being nervous, and I'm not saying that anxiety in public speaking isn't a reality. I understand that. But the key is to, to look out from a podium and to say, These people here are why I'm here. You are why I'm here. I I get asked all the time, do you ever get nervous preaching? I really don't. And the reason is because I've been praying for you. I've been thinking of you. I've been studying with you in mind. And so that doesn't really come to my mind anymore. So how do you respond to yourself when anxiety and, and worry begins to come upon you? Well, with humility. These two verses in 1 Peter form the culmination of Peter's entire argument in this letter. His argument is basically, as a child of God, you will suffer. Persecution and pain will come. Situations where you are anxious will come. But respond rightly. How do we respond? Chapter 2, he says, put away malice and deceit and envy and slander. Keep your conduct among unbelievers pure and holy. Submit to all authorities since they're given by God. Chapter 3, Peter says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, even your unbelieving husbands. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding manner. Have unity of mind, brotherly love. Don't be vengeful in any way. Be ready to give a defense for your faith, yet do so with gentleness and respect. Chapter 4, since Christ suffered in the flesh also, think like him. All of your suffering will make sin seem pointless, and that's a gift. Be faithful in the church of Jesus Christ, chapter 4, verses 8 and following. Stop being surprised when you suffer. He says in chapter 4, verse 13, rejoice. 
insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In chapter 5, he tells the shepherds of the church to shepherd the flock of God, meaning the members, members of the church be subject to the elders. You put all this together, all in one little succinct package, the totality of obedience in the midst of suffering, the summation of Peter's argument, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Spiritual anxiety, the kind that's brought on by not trusting the Lord, is cured with humility. It is cured with humility. And that's the fragrance of Christ that's blossoming in the believer. That that's the fragrance that you're putting out. Now earlier I quoted 2 Corinthians 2.14. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. But listen to the shocking next two verses. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. This is shocking. First of all, we are the aroma of Christ to God. The aroma of your life is to be pleasing to God. Now, this is important. This is sacrificial language. This is the language of altar sacrifice. Exodus 29, 18, burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord, meaning that a life sacrificed to Christ, a life subjected to Christ, a life united with Christ, a life humble in Christ is a sweet aroma to the Lord. But the sweet aroma is to God. And then the other shocking part of this, among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. You are the aroma of Christ to the saved, and you are to be the aroma of Christ to the lost. To the lost, to those who will never submit to the Lord Christ in salvation, the aroma of Christ ultimately becomes the stench that leads to death. People who will end up in hell don't want anything to do with Christ. And to those who are being saved or who will be saved, the aroma of Christ is the sweet fragrance of holiness which leads to life. I have lost track of the number of times I've had somebody sit in my office after recently coming to faith in Christ and I ask them, how did you come to faith? Because we're going to baptize them or they're going to be members or whatnot. And I've lost track of how many times they said, because I hung around this person in your church and I knew I wanted whatever she had. I have heard that more times than I care to count. That's our evangelism is the life. It opens the door for you to say, can I tell you why I'm different? But how sad is it for somebody to look at you as a believer in Christ and not know that you're any different than them? So humility is that beautiful aroma. So when Jesus ended this parable, so the last will be first to illustrate the incredible sovereign grace of God to save us from sin. Can I tell you what the proper response is? The proper response is, it's good to be last. It's good to be last. It's good to be the 11th hour because I have nothing to offer. It is good to be last. And this is manifested in the sweet, sweet fragrance of humility. And I hope it will be for you as well. Let me pray for you. Our Father, even the fact that we may call you Father, is so gracious and kind of you, so beautiful. And Lord, 
we come to you now, every single one of us, myself at the top of the list, in need of more humility. And while the old joke goes, don't pray for humility because God will give it to you, I find that repugnant. We ought to pray for humility, and so we do. And we would ask you, Lord, to make us more humble, to make us respond to you with humility, to make us respond to one another with humility, and to make us respond to our own anxieties with humility. I pray, Lord, for these precious ladies that you have brought here today. They were here this morning to hear this message. And I pray that they would leave this place this weekend more humble, more thankful for their salvation, and more eager to demonstrate that humility to all those around them. I pray these things for the sake of Christ and in his name. Amen.